The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Everybody, it's Monday. It's Fantasy NBA Today. Welcome back. Another week of your floating aimless podcast through <laughs> Fantasy NBA Scape. I am Dan Bespris at Dan Bespris on Twitter, D A N B E S B R I S. Please do give me a follow if you haven't already, although I'm guessing at this point any of you guys that are on social media have already done so. Big thank you. Big thank you to everybody that continues to listen to the podcast, even in these weird and trying times. It is much appreciated. And uh, certainly bearing with me as I put these episodes out at all too strange times of day and times of night and sometimes just have issues and can't get a darn show up. It is a special time. Toddler, newborn, pandemic. We got it all, man. We got it all. We uh, have a plan on Mondays, which is saying something because we don't have a plan every other day of the week. Uh, On Friday... We wrapped up the Southeast Division with our 20th postmortem. That was the Washington Wizards. We also talked a little bit about how teams are starting to open up their practice facilities late last week. And that continues into today. Again, nothing significant going on from a moving back towards basketball standpoint. But it was still something, and it still felt like a ceremonial type of thing. It still felt good. It still felt good. I actually went out of my home today. I didn't want to, but I did because I got my cell phone battery replaced March 11th. The day the NBA shut down, I got my cell phone battery replaced that afternoon. And for some reason, my phone has been overheating and shutting off and it just it stopped working over the weekend. So I actually had to go get a, another battery replacement, same place. I didn't pay for it. They were kind enough to take it out, put a new one in. I stayed nine feet away from anybody while I was there because I'm paranoid. And uh, he took it out and he was like, this battery's swollen. How did that happen? I'm like, listen, man, I don't know. What do you think I do with my phone? I'm sitting at home doing a podcast and other work all day. I do nothing. I do nothing with my phone. I use like four apps on my phone. I text. I do WhatsApp. um, I search for things sometimes. I mean, really, what am I doing with... Anyway... Uh, so I was outside today. It was weird. The world was strange and and uh, quiet and freaked me out a little bit. Very busy areas of the world that are not busy at the moment. But I guess that's a good thing for uh, for those of us that want to try to keep moving towards normalcy. We want things to be quiet. Here in California, they opened up a few things late last week. They opened up uh, some retail to for curbside pickup. I don't know how you do that with clothing, but I guess some people don't need to try things on. But still, these are the baby steps that we need to see. As far as news goes, there was actually more out of the baseball world than basketball, so we won't spend a ton of time on it, but baseball ownership presented a proposal on return... Well, not returning. I guess they would be starting a season. And the Players Union obviously said no. Now they're going to be getting into negotiations, but it's just nice to see that they're even talking about it. And it's largely money is the split. You know, it's not the safety side. Money is the issue right now. So that's sort of a good sign. But then again, baseball is, at least in terms of large team sports, it's one of the easier ones. 
when it comes to maintaining social distance. I mean, you got three guys in an outfield that's a few acres long, a few acres wide, more. The um, a home plate umpire, the catcher, and the batter are basically the only dudes on a baseball diamond that get close to one another. And even when you got a, a first baseman holding somebody on, he's usually leaning out towards the pitcher anyway. Batter, base runner takes his lead. And he's eight, nine feet away. So you got social distancing all over the place with baseball. The only, you know, couple people are touching the same ball. But, I mean, let's just try to keep the pitchers from going to their mouth, right? They're not a vector anymore. So that's something. That's something. We'll keep monitoring all of this stuff. Uh, viral trends are moving in the right direction. Looking at some of the stats over the weekend just to kind of catch things up. And that's a good sign as well. So uh, hopefully things keep going that way. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. A belated one. We didn't have a show on Sunday. So belated Happy Mother's Day. I hope you guys got to do something either with your moms or if there's a, a wife that uh, deserves attention. I, I Or if you are the mom listening to the podcast. Let's not forget we do have some, not many, but some female listeners of this podcast. And we're thrilled and honored to have you. So Happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to anybody in your life that deserves it. And I hope... During this weird time, you guys were able to have at least a sort of okay Mother's Day. That's all I think we can hope for right now. And hopefully in a month, we'll have uh, more opportunities on Father's Day to, to make it easier or simpler to actually see the, uh, the fathers in your lives. Um, I guess I'll, I'll take a moment here on a personal level to uh, wish a uh, today would have been my father's 71st birthday. We're talking about Mother's and Father's Days right there. Uh, lost him about a year and a half ago, so that's still relatively fresh. Um, hoping to eat a Costco chicken in his honor this evening. So, missing old daddy today. As far as the podcast goes, we do have our normal Monday stuff to go over. We've got our lesson. This will be lesson number four, and episodes seven and eight of The Last Dance, which aired on Sunday, and I was able to catch up on today. I want to start with The Last Dance because, as per usual, there isn't a ton that I want to dig into. Because, And I saw this being discussed on Twitter, and I saw it more today, actually, and it surprised me a little bit. I saw it more today than I had after previous airings of, of this documentary. But you guys remember, I said it even, I think, two or three shows back, or three Mondays back, when it all started. I was like, look, I don't know how much we can really argue about this documentary. I don't know how many things we can deep dive the point of the documentary was to deep dive a little bit and it's not like there was controversy that they're bringing up that's still as of yet unsolved it's a story that already happened whatever it is it's so old that yelling about it feels you know like shouting into the void a little bit but it was again very cool to watch and for me i really enjoyed episode seven Maybe more than most people did. Because it had baseball too. My two loves, my two sports loves together, baseball and basketball. And I know, you know, it wasn't exactly the, the glamorous baseball that everybody's used to, but it's the one that was a part of my life. And I, I never worked for the Birmingham Barons, but I worked in minor league baseball for eight seasons. So almost a decade I was in minor league ball. Eight seasons and... An extra offseason blended in there as well. I, I was in minor league baseball for a long time, basically from uh, about age 23 to age 33. There was a year or two in there where I, where I wasn't 
in the minors. And so to to see this the the world's greatest basketball player of his era or arguably any era hang him up and go sign a, a multi-million dollar contract and we we heard the discussion from uh Bulls and and White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf just saying like look I wanted to give him more playing basketball but screw it I just give it to him playing baseball cuz he had made so many people so much money and then he goes in and they talked about it in the documentary but I wanted to stress it again and I I've I've seen baseball Twitter talking about it today but I'm guessing a lot of you folks listening to this podcast you fine folks are mostly watching basketball Twitter, if any. Baseball Twitter was, like me, reminded of the fact that Michael Jordan, who hadn't played competitive baseball in 14 years, hit over 200 at double A. I mean, do any of us, do you, any of you guys, you, I, I know many of you are basketball people, but I'm guessing at least some percentage of you are into baseball as well. But do you guys have any idea how unbelievably hard it is to hit 200 or better at double a all right so you've got 25 person rosters in the big leagues of 30 is it 30 teams right now i can't remember if they're unbalanced at this point i think it's 30 teams right now uh so you're talking about 750 players those are the 750 best players in the world what most folks don't realize about baseball is that triple a and double a as far as talent gap, it's it's pretty squeezed. You see guys get called up from AA to the majors regularly. AAA has a lot of big leaguers, so it is better. But you're talking about now, among the top 2,000 baseball players in the world. And that sounds like a big number, but it's not. When you think about how many people play baseball. Because then you got just in the minors alone, just at the pro ranks, you have another 750 at A-ball and 750 at low A and 750 at short season and rookie ball. And there are spring training complex teams. Extended spring, they call it. They've got Dominican leagues, Venezuelan leagues. You've got college, if you want to go that route. Literally hundreds, maybe even you could argue around a thousand college teams at different levels. So you're talking about, I mean, you put, and college teams have ridiculously long rosters, 40, 50 guys on those things. So you're talking about 40 or 50,000 college players that have the opportunity. You don't have to play four years of college ball to go pro. Those guys could be in the minors. And then you've got a couple thousand people even beneath him in the minors. And he went in there and he had 200. If you put me at double A and you let me get, you know, four or five hundred at bats in a season, if I got like five hits, I would be thrilled. I would be absolutely thrilled. If I went five for five hundred, I'd be stoked. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I don't know that I'd make contact five times, so let alone five hits. And this dude, who hasn't played in 14 years and is the greatest basketball player on earth, picks up the lumber, and just takes hacks for countless hours. By the way, minor league ball players, uh, they play every day. So if you're thinking, like, well, you know, maybe he could have practiced all the time. No, they ain't, they're really in time for that. You're doing your team activities, at least nowadays, 
the team activities in the minors start at about 2 in the afternoon, and those guys leave the ballpark at about 11 o'clock at night. Thereabouts. So what are you going to do? Take hacks at midnight? Yeah, you can get in, take hacks in the morning. You're doing this 140 days in a row, basically. So that was that was sweet. I really like to see him in the minors. I, I even if they only showed a few clips of him playing minor league ball, it just it took me back to a different time in my own life. Uh, also, by the way, I didn't realize Terry Francona was his manager in the minors. Probably should have known that. Probably should have known that. Episode eight, I was less enthralled with. I liked the <laughs> I liked Jordan laughing maniacally as he watched video of Gary Payton talking about trying to slow him down. Uh, it was fun to see all the different fake battles that Jordan picked over the years. That was. I think that if you had to say what happened in episode eight, that was it. It was like, here's all the times that Jordan created animosity that wasn't there to motivate himself. To motivate himself to beat up on somebody. He had a fight with George Carl. Now, George Carl, in his later years, he's turned out to be a little bit of a schmuck. But uh, that wasn't really a thing back then. And apparently they were they were friendly prior to the dinnertime snub. And... Uh, who the hell else was on that docket? Oh, uh, the the rookie. I've already forgotten his name. There was a rookie that he claimed said good game, Mike, and that was basically made up. And then, you know, he got into a thing with B.J. Armstrong, friendly, of course, his former teammate. See, episode 8 was just, here's all the guys that Michael Jordan got pissed at and fought with. Steve Kerr punched him in the face. Hit him in the eye, in his words. Anyway, cool documentary continues. I liked episode 7 more than episode 8. I thought... And maybe it was because episode seven had a little bit more of the challenge, the turmoil. They're right, by the way. They're right. Who's right, Dan? What the hell are you talking about? They're right. People that are the best at what they do, the world loves to see them struggle. Even when you want to ultimately see them succeed, you want to see the greatest do the greatest things, but you don't want it to come easily. So we're watching these things and, you know, eliminate the the dad subplot because that was and continues to be heartbreaking. We're just talking about little battles. And for for Michael, just seeing him struggle with motivation even. And and it sounded like, by the way, even he said it. He was like, I, you know, a lot of people thought he was leaving basketball. Whether or not something horrible befell his father, that just sort of expedited the process. But just to sort of see the greatest struggling in some capacity, again, not talking about the dad situation, just otherwise. And even when he came back to basketball, seeing him struggling in that first playoffs back, these are the things. These are needle movers. This is seeing, this is seeing the champion, the greatest, struggle. Because we all struggle. You don't want to watch some guy just walk over everybody. You know, for me, I played a lot of video games as as a, a kid and into adulthood, and the only only recently since I've had children that I've sort of run out of time for it. I don't want to play a game that I can just sort of walk through easily. I want it to be a fight. I want it to be a challenge. I like golf. Golf is never easy. It doesn't require an insane amount of athletic ability. It requires a lot of coordination. So I'm not trying to claim that I have to like overcome athletic deficiencies here and play golf, but from a mental and coordination standpoint, it's a really complicated game. The challenge of golf 
as a teenager kind of turned me into the person I am today. It taught me a, a level of patience that I definitely did not have as a younger teenager. Changed the way that I deal with everything in my life. As long as I have enough sleep to operate effectively. <laughs> Does he right now? Not really. So we'll talk more about The Last Dance uh, next Monday when the documentary will be over. There are the last two episodes on Sunday, episodes 9 and 10. We'll try to do a little bit of a wrap-up here, and then we'll have to come up with something else to talk about on Mondays, won't we? By the way, it hit me like a ton of bricks. We're probably going to run out of content here before we get any NBA news back. Boy, I was hoping that all this stuff would get us to a point where we got something, but, uh, well, here we are. Lesson of the year. Number four. And this one is a throwback. Because last week, I got on the podcast, and we did, and I, ooh, I had a lot of fun with last week's lesson. I loved it. Last week, we talked about the last 72. That was sweet. And it was actually really helpful. It was really helpful, I thought, at least. And I hope you guys agreed. As I was even working through it myself, I felt like I was improving my own ability. Because it, it allowed us to figure out a better way to isolate who we should be actually drafting at the end of a draft. And then I thought, well, next week, which would now be today, the 11th, well, next week we'll talk about like the middle chunk, because we always talk about those first three rounds. And then we've earlier on these lessons, we talked about making the adjustment, making the tweak to get more aggressive around pick 60 or 65 instead of pick 75 or 80. And then we talked about the last 72 of a 180 person draft. So basically uh, after round nine, rounds 10 through however deep your draft goes, and I thought, okay, next week, again, which would have been today, we'll knock out the spots in between. Basically, what do we do between when we get super aggressive near pick 65 and when those guys run out, whatever you want to call it, around later, around pick 75 or 80, and pick 108, where things really dry up? How do we deal with that, if you want to call it 75 to 108, or we could even call it that aggressive point, that 65 to 108 range? But then, as I was starting to do some research on that prior to doing today's podcast and coming up with a plan, it occurred to me that we needed to do a rehash on a throwback lesson that ties all of these draft strategies together and how all the things we're talking about, the first three rounds, the... 36 to 60, the 60 to, to uh, 108, it's not really good. It's not really a great number. The 60 to 75, the 75 to 108, the 108 to the end. All of those chunks that we're breaking down are tied in together to one overarching lesson. And that lesson is understanding how the settings of your league dictate your strategy in every single round of a draft. And I'm not talking about something basic and bare bones like what number of positions you have on your team. Because, and we've talked about this before, so I won't spend too much time on it. I'm a huge fan 
of basically turning off positional requirements. Almost every league that I'm a commissioner of, I have turned point guard, shooting guard, guard into just three guards. Because what the hell is anybody nowadays anyway? How many years have we heard about positionless basketball? The wave of the future. Positionless basketball. Everybody's just an amoeba out on the court, blobbing from spot to spot. No one's occupying a position anymore. There's a handful of guys that have pretty clear-cut roles. Like, there are tiny dudes that are obviously the point guard. And there are big lumbering oxes that are exclusively a center. But let's be honest here. All these guys that we're... we're I see so many Twitter conversations, and we get questions about it in the HoopBall forums, and I get questions about it on Twitter, and we get mailbag questions about it. Like, oh, Dan, how do you... When is this guy going to get so-and-so eligibility? And this is why it's bleeping dumb. By the way, I agree with all of you guys. Your collective plight is also my plight. You know, when I'm looking at a guy like Evan Fournier, and he's shooting guard and small forward, fine. Okay, great. So he's a guard and a forward at this point. Do we care that it's a two and a three on the court? What about Glenn Robinson the third? That dude almost definitely played some power forward this year. There's so many guys out there that have just sort of played some... Larry Nance played extensive small forward minutes towards the later part of this season. So why am I fighting to, to try to figure out... Why, like, what if I needed a small forward on my roster and Larry Nance says power forward and center eligibility? And I'm sitting there like, look, I'm literally watching him on my TV right now playing small forward, and yet I can't use him as one in my fantasy team until he gets five starts there or something to that effect. That's stupid. I get it. Every website has to have their criteria that players need to meet before they gain a particular point of eligibility. I just choose to make life easier and not worry about that. But that's not even what we're talking about today. Turn your positional stuff off. Your lives will improve dramatically. It's just... It's dumb and it's not relevant nowadays anymore, aside from, you know, smaller cases. The majority now, it's, it's, it's dumb. Everybody's everything. There. That's that thought in a nutshell. I'm actually talking about something simpler and yet at the same time a little bit more What's the word I'm looking for here? It's simpler and and not more difficult. That doesn't make sense. It's simpler and at the same time, it's broader. It has more implications, despite being a simpler concept. And that simple concept that I'm referring to is, when we talk about settings, I'm talking about something as straightforward as, do you have a weekly league or a daily league? Is your league head-to-head or roto? Because every decision we make on draft day is tied into the settings of your league. Our illustrious founder, the amazing creator of HoopBall, Aaron Bruschi, tends to draft roto and head-to-head the same. I tend to draft them somewhat differently. And here's why we're both right. I'm right because I play 
almost exclusively daily leagues. Bruce right because he plays almost exclusively weekly leagues. The differences I make with my head-to-head and my roto teams, and by the way, I think he would agree too that when you, there are the one area where you would draft differently for the two of them, regardless of your league settings, would be, do we think this person is actually going to play down the stretch? Because that is a much bigger deal in head-to-head than it is in Roto. But from a, is this person injury-prone standpoint? Or, because, you know, you're looking at a games cap. Well, all right, listen, I don't want to go too deep on any one thought here. I want to take this piece by piece. I'm right. I'm going to tell you why each of us is right. I'm right because in daily leagues, there are marked differences between the two. Brew's right. In weekly leagues, there aren't actually that many giant differences between the two. Unless you have a punt strategy, which I think you can use in head-to-head that mm, is not necessarily the wisest move to make. At least not on draft day in, uh, in your Roto League. So now in a weekly league you're looking for a certain measure of durability. That's a colossal deal. You want the guys that can slow plod their way to totals value over the course of a year. This I'm going to draw I'm going to draw a line to our the point that really ties this into draft day. In a daily league, specifically daily roto where you have a games cap, but also daily head to head you're able to make moves to streamline the deeper parts of your team. Here's where I think the two sides intersect. Early draft. Early draft, unless you're in a hard punt format, Roto, or uh, excuse me, weekly and head-to-head and uh, daily league should be pretty close to the same. You want guys early that are going to play a ton of games uh, because each game you get from someone inside the top 25 is extraordinarily valuable. So you can pretty much operate on totals at the early part of your draft, regardless of league format. As you get into the middle parts of your draft, that's where we've talked about before, getting a little bit more aggressive around pick 60. This is guys where yeah, you may take a few more chances, but you're, you're shooting the moon. You're firing for upside, and I think you do a little bit of that in both. The two things that we want to talk about here in the well, last week, last Monday's lesson about the last 72, and next Monday's lesson, which is going to be about the late middle 30 or the late middle 40 or whatever dumb name you want me to come up with this one, you know, from about 65 to 105, roughly, those areas are very different in weekly versus daily leagues. And these arguments that happen on Twitter and the fantasy landscape are two sides arguing apples and oranges. And I'm here on this podcast to sort of expose the argument as being bunk and based on nothing. It's flimsy argument because both sides are right. You're never going to convince the other side that they're wrong because they're not. If I'm drafting, and this is this is so critical, look at the guy's on your look at the ranking system for guys in the 90s on a per game basis versus the guys in the 90s based on totals. I mean, this is such an unbelievably stark discrepancy. Duncan Robinson is number 89 
on a per-game basis, and by the way, this can go both directions, Duncan Robinson on a totals basis is number 59 because he played 65 games this year. It goes the other way too. De'Aaron Fox is number 157 by totals on the year, and he's in the 90s on a per game, but he missed 20 games this season. And those are just two stark examples. There are plenty of guys in that range that go, that sort of flip in both directions. I, I, can, I can rattle them off to you. Jared Allen was number 94 by averages. He's about two and a half rounds better than that by totals. You have a similar phenomenon that might occur a round or two later, where games played end up moving guys 20, 30, 40 slots because everybody's so freaking close together in rankings. By value, they're all bunched in that range. Up at the top, you just you can't see massive movement like that because the players are separated by more. A huge games played bump. What does that move? Chris Paul played 63 games this year. He went from 12 to 7. Which, by the way, is actually a colossal value jump. But from an actual ranking standpoint, it doesn't change all that much. The reason I bring this up is because when we discuss these types of things, you need to tailor what you're doing to your league settings. I will use friend of the program, PJ Tucker, as arguably the best example of this phenomenon. PJ Tucker is number 102 on a per game value, and PJ Tucker is number 69 by totals on the year. If you're in a weekly format, P.J. Tucker has been immensely valuable to your fantasy team because he's played in 64 games. He's just there and reliable and exists and gets on the floor and posts his little low-usage old man numbers that we've appreciated on this show many times. And he's rolling along and just outside of a top 100 clip, which is not super awe-inspiring. But when you're in a weekly format and you've got a guy that you know is going to just give you four games of top 105, top 110 production, that's better than a guy giving you three games of top 75, top 80 production. It just is. It's the nature of the math. If you're in a Roto Daily Games Cap format, that's not necessarily true. Because if you're in a Roto Daily Games Cap format and you have P.J. Tucker on your team, you might be better off just rotating that roster spot to the hottest free agent for the next two games. Or hell, do it for a week. I don't care. But find someone, you can go find someone on the wire, and it might even be P.J. Tucker for two weeks. You catch him when he has a top 50 two-week stretch, great. But when he goes ice cold for two weeks, you don't play him. Because you could even drop him if you wanted to. Or you can just rotate someone else in that's in that same range. Daniel House, or Justin Holliday, or Kevin Herter. Derek Jones for stretches. Damian Lee for stretches. You get the idea of the kind of players I'm talking about. Guys that you, if you're in a games cap format, you got no business starting these dudes for 80, 80 games in a row. But they run hot for two, three, four, five, six, seven games. You do. 
You trot them out there and then you dump them when they cool off because it's better. It's better to be able to utilize. And here's the thing. I know what you're thinking as I'm saying it because I'm thinking it too. Dan, if you're going to have that guy for two weeks on your team, you've now turned him into a weekly asset. Yes, but also no, because someone might cool off on a Wednesday. And then you pick up someone else who's great for five games. Yeah, it's more than a week, but he turns crap on a Friday. Because, I don't know, maybe he was the seventh man on a team and the fourth man on the team got hurt. So his minutes went up by 14. I don't know what caused it. Derek Jones Jr. is a good example of this. When that team was healthy, he was playing 20, what, 1, 20, 21 minutes a game. When they weren't, he was playing 28, 29. But that might happen from a Wednesday through a Sunday or a Wednesday through the following Thursday. You're going to want to get rid of him for that game on Friday. This is the big difference between Roto Games Cap and weekly late and middle draft assets. In a weekly format, there's a lot to be said for going straight up old man style all the way through. You don't even have to go upside hunting. You can go reliability hunting late in a draft because by totals, a lot of those weirdos end up with pretty good value. Tomas Sadoransky, another interesting example of this. I like Sado this year. He had an okay season, not great. Number 130 on a per-game basis. I don't think I'm trotting that guy out in a daily games cap format. I don't want a guy giving me top 130 when every game counts against my cap. But if you told me he was going to play 65 games at the time the league was shut down, and in a weekly format... He's always out there. That's why he's number 82 by totals. It's not because he posted giant lines. It's because over the course of the year, he just rolled up enough stats to get inside the top 85. It would be far better for your games cap team to pick up Sadoransky for the five games he's hot. I don't know, when Chris Dunn went down or Zach Levine was down or whatever the hell it was. And then as soon as those guys... Well, Dunn didn't come back. But as soon as Levine comes back, well, then you drop then you drop Sadoransky for, I don't care, DeLon Wright for two games. And then you drop DeLon Wright for P.J. Tucker or Justin Holiday or Colin Sexton or whoever the hell you want to talk about who was playing a ton of ball games but on a per-game basis actually wasn't doing all that much. Or Terrence Ross is a great example. Maxi Kleba. All these guys finished inside the top 85 by totals, and very few of the names I just said finished inside the top 100 by averages. Very few. What, one, maybe two of those guys? Let's bring this all together. We look back at the way we're talking about these draft positions, and it's why I'm tweaking my own strategy for all of my leagues except one. 30 deep. The 30-team industry pro mega ultra super league that all the fantasy experts you know and love are in together is a weekly format league and having justin i had justin holiday i had pj tucker i had tj warren i had these guys that were just plodding along and they played all of their games and especially in a 30 deep format that's colossal you make sure you get four games out of somebody in a given week, that's a huge deal. 
But all of my money leagues, every single one of them, is a daily league. Most of them are Roto Games caps. Some of them are head-to-head. All those Roto Games caps league, it's time for me to make the tweak. It's time for all of us to make the tweak. If you're in a Games cap format where you can make daily roster moves, it's time to abandon ship on any safe pick after number 75. There is no point in grabbing someone like a P.J. Tucker at that spot, much as I might love him for his durability and super boring fantasy plod. He's an awful pick in a Roto daily games cap format. Horrendous. Sorry. It's just the truth. I'd rather have the guy ranked near P.J. Tucker, who's played 10, 15 fewer games, but has massive upside. P.J. Tucker blew De'Aaron Fox out of the water in totals value this year. I would still far prefer to have De'Aaron Fox's 45 games versus P.J. Tucker's 64. Because I'll find someone ranked as high or higher than P.J. Tucker to fill out those other 19 games. Perhaps you'd like an even more, uh, a, even a closer situation because as i mentioned before pj tucker was like 70 on totals 60 i think i said and no 70 and De'Aaron fox was at like 150 so i don't know how much farther part i gotta get but De'Aaron fox has a lot of name recognition so let's let's go a different direction with this uh De'Aaron fox missed a ton of basketball games mm, let's look at someone else uh Derek favors i'd rather had Derek favors 45 games this year then P.J. Tucker's 64. And they weren't separated that by that much. Derek Favors was number 87 on a per-game basis, but I'd still rather have 45 games of number 87 in a Roto games cap than 64 games of 102 because I can take the other 17, at 19, excuse me, of those games, the gap there, and I'll use that on the hot free agent. If you give me 80, if you give me 45 games of number 87... I'm fairly certain that I can do enough with the 19 other games to make that combined Franken-Monster better than just P.J. Tucker alone. I'll roll out the reserves. Whatever guys hurt, I'll pick up his backup for four games. I'll do that four or five times, and boom. You got yourself, instead of a top 60 guy in P.J. Tucker, top 70, top 60, by totals, You've got this Franken-creature of Derek Favors and four other hot free agents using up those same 64 games, and they're a top 50 or top 45 monster altogether. That, that is why we prefer to have the guy with, and Derek Favors is not a massive upside guy. He's a little bit of upside, but that's why we prefer to have the guys with big upside, even if they have big risk at that point. Take the risks, swing for the fences, at that point in your draft, because if any of them hit, it's huge. And if they don't, you just rotate free agents onto your team. It doesn't matter. You're probably going to drop half these guys anyway, or more. And if you're in a weekly league, yeah, I'd probably rather have 64 of P.J. Tucker than 45 of Derek Favors. That's why both sides are right, and that's why both sides need to stop yelling at each other. Is there one better way to play a fantasy league? I prefer daily because I like to get into the trenches every day. I do fewer leagues with more work on each one. Some people like more leagues with less work on each one. That's fine. 
We're all right. The kids are all right. And so I wanted to have this discussion because it's not really necess- not even necessarily a lesson learned from this season, but it is something that I thought got pulled into focus when I started to look at those guys ranked in the 90 to 120 range, and I thought, man, some of these guys are super durable, and I just don't care at all that they're durable because I'd rather have the guy ranked right next to them or even inside that pocket or just in front of them that missed a crap ton of games. As it turned out this year, the guys on a on a per-game basis ranked between about 50 and 75 were actually all relatively durable with the exception of, like, Norman Powell and D'Angelo Russell. There just weren't that many guys in the 50 to 75 chunk that missed a ton of games. So it doesn't get pulled into focus as much this year. But that's not typical. Typically, you're going to see someone in every 20-person clump that missed a bunch of basketball. So if you go just a tiny bit farther, you see a bunch of them. Uh, Brandon Clark missed, you know, 15 games. Serge Ibaka missed 15 games. Malcolm Brogdon missed like 20. Draymond Green missed a half the season. Favors. These guys are all in the 75 to 85, 90 range. I'd rather have those guys missing a ton of time than the dudes at 110 playing every day. Simple as that. In my daily leagues. So understand that that's where we're coming from, and that's why we're talking about upside hunting late in a draft. I mean, if you want to have Joe Harris with 63 games or DeLon Wright at 65 games, those guys actually are pretty damn useful in a weekly league. These are the big gaps. You find those guys, isolate the guys with massive gaps between their totals ranking and their per-game ranking, and you have the guys that create the weekly versus daily splits in fantasy. And that's why last week we talked about, because again, I'm I'm more of a daily guy. Last week we talked about what to do with those last 72 picks, and it's just finding guys that have the opportunity to do something special. Don't bother with the other dudes. And that's the same general tack we're going to take into next week's episode on Monday, next week's lesson of who to target between roughly where we got a little bit more aggressive in that 60 to 70 range and where things get real thin in the just past 100 range. And that's our show for today, folks. That's our Monday show. Tomorrow, we will likely resume our check-in on each of the 30 NBA teams. We finished up the Southeast Division. You'll have to tune in and find out where we're headed next. Also, uh, we'll be talking to Adam King and Josh Millman about a uh, decade historical fantasy draft they put together and some of the results from that little fun deal. We'll talk to Brandon Marcus pretty soon, get some of his lessons learned from a season gone by, and then we'll keep pulling names from the amazing ranks over at hoop-ball.com where uh, things continue to take shape. By the way, as we were talking, the uh, a piece of news dropped that the Miami Heat are going to be holding individual player practices on starting on Wednesday. I mean, that's legitimate. I know they're not all playing together, but that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Nate over at Hoopball breaking down his favorite team, the Rockets. That's in a written format, so you can check that out. Steve Vitovich working on the Dallas Mavericks. The fantasy Snapchat, who had two fantasy superstars. Alan Soroki, one of our buddies who's been on the podcast a few times as well. He wrote about the Hawks and the Mavs. 
And of course, on the podcast front, we have a new Hoopball Clippers episode today, a new Hoopball Bulls episode today, and a new Hoopball Pelicans episode today. These apps are dropping, baby. We got lots of stuff going on over at Hoopball. Uh, the great Devin Ellington continues to put in work over at Hoopball Gaming. We actually have betting on the Korean baseball leagues. So check that out as well. Uh, and that's all going on at various Twitter feeds that you can find through our Hoopball main deal at Hoopball Tweets or at Hoopball Fantasy. Have a great Monday, everybody. Back at you tomorrow. What time of day? We do not know. But I am Dan Vespers at Dan Vespers on Twitter. And we'll get back yet in on Tuesday. That's it. That's all I got. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.